Welcome to Raising Rochester. I'm Pete Nabosny. Raising Rochester is brought to you by the Children's Agenda and focuses on the key issues affecting children and families in Rochester and New York State. My guest today is Justin Murphy. Justin is the education reporter for the Democrat and Chronicle and the author of a new book. Your Children Are Very Greatly in Danger chronicles the history of school segregation in Rochester and helps explain how our community grew into one of the most educationally and socially segregated communities in the country. I've been looking forward to Justin's book for quite some time and was really happy to be able to discuss it with him on the podcast. All right, Justin Murphy, welcome to the Raising Rochester podcast. Happy to be here. Surprised it took you so long to invite me. <laughs> Why did you wait until you, uh, until your big book was out, um, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today. But before we kind of dive into this book that you've written, which is um, getting a lot of attention locally, I want to just give our listeners a little sense of, of who you are and, and, and your background, although I think a lot of folks have some familiarity with you. So you grew up in the Greater Rochester region, right? And I guess kind of walk us through sort of your childhood till you decided to become a journalist. Yeah, I grew up in Penfield. I graduated uh, from Penfield High School and went around to college a little bit. I graduated from the University of Chicago. Still not totally decided on on what I wanted to do, but um, eventually got interested in journalism. And then uh, I got my degree from uh, Syracuse, a master's degree in journalism. And for a couple years, I worked at the newspaper out in Auburn, um, which is a tremendous uh, learning experience for journalism, just to be churning out stories. Uh, and then from there, I got hired at the DNC in 2012. And um, it was in 2014 that I first started covering education. When I started, it was strictly the RCSD beat and then has kind of grown to education and, and surrounding issues more broadly since then. Yeah, so what drew you to journalism? I mean, you said you didn't quite know what you wanted to do after college, but, but like, yeah, what drew you to, to that specific field in the end? Well, you know, I, I was always interested in writing and language, and I kind of lacked the uh, creativity to think of what to do with it. My, my major in undergraduate was at the University of Chicago was linguistics, and uh, after I graduated, I spent uh, a few months out in um, the Lake Tahoe area doing field work uh, with a Native American tribe called the Washoe. They have a, their language was, they only had maybe 15 fluent speakers at the time, and they didn't have a dictionary or a grammar or anything written down. So our job was to, to sit every day with the elders who spoke the language and uh, elicit sentences from them you know how do you say I crossed the street how do you say I used to cross the street how do you say I want to cross the street and then we would uh, chop that up make a like an online dictionary and also try to kind of puzzle out the the grammatical rules and in, in a way that hadn't formally been done so like that was very fun enjoyable um, but then at the end of like each of those very long days we would have dinner with them or or do something in the community and they would be telling us stories about like when they were growing up uh, what used to be they would be telling the uh, you know the folklore uh, of the tribe and it just occurred to me like this is way more interesting than the other stuff that I'm doing yeah. that I'm like nominally here for and it kind of changed the direction of my mind in terms of what I was looking at uh, and eventually it, it dawned on me that that's kind of like what a journalist could do 
So that's what led me eventually to go back to school and get a journalism degree. So you wrote a book. Your book is called Your Children Are Very Greatly in Danger, um, based on a James Baldwin essay, correct? Yep. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, I, know you, I listened to your interview with, with Evan Dawson on Connections, but the your children in this instance aren't necessarily who someone would think are the children greatly in danger. Um, and we're going to kind of go through elements of your book, but do you want to just kind of maybe start with that, explain kind of what drew you to that title and, and why that has particular resonance in our community? Yeah, I was just reading a, a James Baldwin essay collection as I was going along, and um, one of his points in a lot of his writing is like, it's obvious enough the harm that segregation and, and racism in general has done in the black community, but then we kind of often think like, oh, well, white people like one segregation they're like you know we get the the good side in like there's a sense in which that's true but there's also a sense in which that's very much not true and there's harm done to white people even when they've been able to move to the nice suburb and get the nice jobs and stuff um and so what the the line in the essay that the, the title came from he said uh, as long as my children face the future they face and come to the ruin that they come to, your children are very greatly endangered too. They are endangered above all by the moral apathy which pretends it isn't happening. And that to me just speaks directly to um, to the situation in a lot of American cities, in Rochester certainly being one, that we've known for decades and decades that uh, we have racial and socioeconomic segregation, that it's harmful not only to the to the non-white people who are trapped by it into the city, but also to the white people and, and generally wealthy people who are trapped on the outside, so to speak. And we all need to have like a community conversation about all of those aspects and the harm that it does and how we can escape it. Great, yeah, so hopefully hopefully your book has some of that impact to, to advance that conversation. So I finished your book the other day and I mean, broadly speaking, it's it's chronological, right? It, it kind of traces back the the history of segregation in Rochester schools and, and efforts to integrate that, um, dating back to to the early parts of the um, the city's founding. So, do you want to just kind of like real briefly kind of walk through the the I think of it as three main eras. Of the, obviously, the pre civil rights era is a much um, larger um, length of time, but just sort of walk through the sort of the broads sweeping aspect, I guess, of, of, of that struggle to, on one side, keep schools segregated in this community, and then on the other side, to, to push for greater integration. Yeah. Yeah, I think of it in, in four phases. So the, the first one, the first chapter um, is the, the 19th century struggle to desegregate schools formally, um, starting from, you know, the, the beginning of organized education at all in Rochester. Um, black kids were first informally and then formally barred from the, the main common school system. And there was a very active push uh, in the 1840s and 50s to, to dismantle that system. Frederick Douglass, that of course is when he came here and he played a, a leading role, uh, although not exclusive role in doing that. So in 1856 is when uh, the black school gets closed. And then from 1856 for almost 100 years, there's kind of a quiet period. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that up until World War II and even shortly thereafter, the, 
the black population in Rochester consistently is about 1%. So there's like this long, stable period where the, a, a stable black community is able to grow up and they come to essentially terms with the white community that, you know, like as long as we kind of sequester ourselves over in the third ward, the, the Cornhill neighborhood, and as long as we don't make what are viewed as inappropriate claims to, uh, you know, liberty or, or whatever, then everybody can get along. And everybody more or less did get along. Um, so, like, there's there's really very little in the historical record for all that period in terms of the experience of black kids in school, except for kind of like, you know, scattered complaints or, you know, I was able to dig some complaints out of the archives in places where they wouldn't say it out loud, but, but you know, they're lodging criticisms. Yeah. And then, you know, that's, that starts to change uh, around 1950 as the Great Migration begins in Rochester. And that is disruptive on a number of fronts. Obviously, the, the white community, which had been sort of laying the groundwork for greater physical segregation through redlining and housing discrimination, um, you know, they, they don't react well to thousands and thousands of, of poor black agricultural migrants arriving in the city. But it's also very dissonant for the that existing stable black middle class community, which is feeling itself unfairly grouped with these, uh, they call them bean pickers coming up from the south. So that's, that's just like a whole stew of things going on. And gradually in the late 50s, after the Brown decision um, and into the early 60s, there's some growing recognition that racial imbalance, as they call it, is a problem that needs to be solved. Um, there's a, a significant federal lawsuit accusing RCSD of desegregation in 1962. And eventually throughout the 60s, there's this series of sort of incremental policy changes in RCSD to improve access to education for black kids. All very sort of small steps, a lot of it voluntary and, and the main effect is that it gives white families time to either leave for the suburbs where there's huge incentives uh, for them to go and build wealth or to formalize their opposition and kind of come up with uh, battle tactics, so to speak. And that becomes extremely relevant in from 1970 to 72 when the district for the one time in its history does undertake a dedicated desegregation plan where kids are required to go to different schools than they otherwise would have for a number of reasons, desegregation being one of them. And that's the the most tumultuous time in, in the city's history in the schools. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of uh, political and social pushback. And the black coalition that had been in support of integration at the beginning in the early 60s uh, has by this time seen enough of the white opposition that they're starting to sour on it. So 1972, the, the plan gets overturned. And in Rochester, and, and at about that time for the rest of the, the northern American cities, that's pretty much the end of the discussion about desegregation. And then so the, the last chapter of my book kind of details like uh, the, the very different conversation we've had since then over the last 50 years or so about how to improve educational outcomes for black kids 
um, in my, you know, that's what we generally call the school reform era. Uh, that's changes to funding, changes to governance, changes to curriculum, pedagogy. And the point that I stress in the book is that all of those, what we see now as the full spectrum of interventions, all take as a given that the schoolroom is going to be segregated. Yeah. And we either don't know how to address that or don't feel like addressing that anymore. So let's let's do the best that we can. So one of the things I, I thought about when I was reading through your book, and, and you know, I, I don't want to sound incredibly cynical, um, but <clears throat> this book is not a, a reassuring tale of, of racial progress or anything um, approaching that. But one thing that kind of occurred to me looking at the the enormous fights in the in the '60s and '70s, early '70s, to to desegregate schools and the just the effort that went into that that failed, right? Um, and the the anti-integrationists they won, and yet the outcome was still the same. That they got to they they beat back the efforts to integrate schools, and then white people continued to leave the city in droves. And we were left with a highly segregated, broader community. And, I and, and when they got to the suburbs, uh, eventually they they gladly put all their kids on the same school buses that they so vehemently had yeah. protested. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It wasn't the as you put it in the book. It wasn't the, the school buses that were actually the issue. It was where the buses were going and, and what kids they were taking where. And I guess I wonder, you know, the counterfactual is always difficult, but if the the plan that was put in place in the, in the early 70s had had taken hold and had lasted for years, um, would our community look much different? <laughs> or would those families have, those white families have continued to leave? Yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Like, what's the, the end result was the, was the same. We were left with a highly segregated, broader Monroe County school system as opposed to a a segregated or integrated system within the city of Rochester. Yeah, it's hard to tease it out from the the larger trends of you know con- constructing highways that make it easier to disperse the the population across the county. But I mean, I think one important takeaway from this is the hope in the civil rights era, and in particular with Brown versus Board of Education, was that if you get the right judicial ruling, if you can push the, the correct stuff through legislatively or administratively, then you'll solve the problem. And like that was very much the hope with the desegregation plan in RCSD. It, it, was, it wasn't a perfect plan, but it, it more or less worked. And they thought, they said, we know that there's going to be this pushback, yeah. but we're going we're gonna to jam it through and our hope is that it will stick for long enough that people will realize that it wasn't so bad in the first place. And I think that that represented a misunderstanding of the opposition. It was based on, first of all, racism, and racism founded largely in fear of the other. And that's not something that is going to get dislodged based on a couple of months of, of you know, fine experience in a new sort of school district it's hard to imagine how that part of it could have could have gone differently i I guess it's hard to see yeah and i I think 
you mentioned that the, the role of courts, um, and that's that's another kind of like pivot point um, in American history, in that school districts in the, in the South, in particular, were under you know the, the heavy hand of the federal court system to ensure that they integrated in the post Brown era, right? And there there was involvement in federal courts in in Rochester, though not not to that extent, and and it was involved in Buffalo and, and some other northern cities, but. The structure of of school districts in the North is it's different in the South, and, and the Supreme Court decision sort of helped create that the, the the existing approach in the North to to schools and and segregated schools was really kind of allowed by by the by the Supreme Court. Do you want to just kind of talk a little bit about that and sort of how the trajectory of integration in the in the South and the North really you know diverged in the seventies? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a very interesting point that I think by and large people, we in the North and in New York and other states have have not been able to wrap our heads around. When Brown came down, that was like, you know, a, a very clear signal to the South and and was like very much cheered in the North because we saw ourselves as categorically different. So it took a long time, but most southern districts either had a federal intervention put in or acted uh, in fear of having a federal intervention put in. Like in Raleigh, for instance, which we hear about so much here in Rochester, they created this countywide school district lest a federal court come in and and force them into something. Those plans in the South had a, a checkered history. They they were largely dismantled um, by the 80s or so, but they were in place for long enough and they were stout enough that they did, in fact, create meaningful uh, desegregation in their schools. And so the, the fact is that today, those schools are much more integrated than Northern schools. Here, you know, northern schools were seen as, well, they're not perfect, but like we've got bigger fish to fry with like, you know, Birmingham and whatever. And by the time the attention shifted to the northern schools, um, the political tides were changing. Uh, You know, the Richard Nixon gets elected in 1968 on a explicitly anti-integration platform. And nothing was, was really able to take root. So cities like some cities like Buffalo, you mentioned, they did have a federal order uh, and, and they did have to put a plan in place throughout the 70s and 80s. Rochester, for, for some essentially random reasons, skated by without one. And the result is that the situation is not only not improved from that time, but has in fact worsened significantly. Yeah, and there are other um, potential paths that the New York could have taken. I was struck, um, I don't remember who the um, state commissioner was at the time, but it does seem like in a, an environment where, you know, in the United States, we, we place a lot of value on a majority rule, right? And and we that's how we elect people, and that's how we make certain decisions about society. But efforts to, to integrate schools had a kind of a necessarily anti-majoritarian kind of approach, right? It, it, was, it was courts, which are not, um, you know, the, those judges are not popularly elected. Um, there also, it seemed like at, for a time, the, the state of New York, the you know Commissioner of Education, was trying to play a role to to encourage, push, force um, 
districts to to better integrate um, as another kind of that's an external actor that might get you to, to do something right. Um, and I was struck by that because that's completely absent from state education policy today, right? I, I've never heard <laughs> Betty Rosa or any of her predecessors talk about like how we need to adopt a more metropolitan approach to, to schools or anything like that. I mean, is that just, do you know if that's like a, a change in the, the, the scope of responsibilities of the state or really a, a way that they sort of envision their role in, in governing you know, schools across the state? I think it, it's in a sense a lesson that they learned from that period. You know, there was at the state level, at the local level, there was a lot of faith in like kind of charismatic white liberal leaders who would who would put the do the right thing, and they lost. You know, even like the urban suburban program, when it was from when it, from its founding until nineteen eighty. Uh, Two, I think it was under the the control of a guy named Norman Gross, and and he had essentially thought it up himself, and he was a a real proselytizer. Like he would go out to the suburban districts that didn't participate and just harangue them into into joining. And since he's gone into the present, the the leadership of urban suburban th- is much more like administratively focused. Yeah. You know, like they're going to make sure that that the buses run on time, and that's about it. So I think um, I think that that just reflects the general trend that like first of all we tried this and it didn't work for whatever reasons that we may or may not want to interrogate and second you know everybody in power now has risen up through the through the lens of thinking of how how to address things within a segregated system you know like no one gets elected to the school board on the on the explicit platform of I don't think we can do this alone yeah. in Rochester. You know that that wouldn't make any sense. So I just I don't I think the vision's been lost entirely. Yeah, I, I mean I I agree, and, and given that it has been fifty years since there was a real aggressive push in this community or really anywhere in in, in New York State, um, it's almost as if the the entire sort of orientation to how you do your job is within this kind of more modern yeah. context of accepting the, the sort of the status quo, both of, of racial segregation in our state, um, but then, but then just also kind of you know the the fact that there is very little, and maybe it's from I think you've you've used the term like exhaustion from from that era that you know that generation who was engaged at that point they consciously sort of walked away right like that's. Yeah. We're, we tried it, it failed, we're done, yeah. let's do something else. And then the sort of successor generations of education leaders, political leaders, have just sort of accepted the, um, you know, that perceived reality, I guess, right? Yeah, and that that's especially interesting, I think, in the black community, because like during the, the integration era, I guess you'd call it from, say, the 1950 until the mid-60s, the the black community in Rochester is still growing, but is small enough that it doesn't have any particular political power on its own, except as a, a block kind of contributing to a, a liberal majority. After white people start leaving and, and more migrants start coming in and then Puerto Ricans start coming in and that sort of thing, a like a specific uh, powerful voting block in the city comes up. And again, it's not 
first of all, it's not in their interest to then try to like redisperse their their political power across a, a larger political scale. And second, they can um, conclude quite rightfully that we tried this and our kids came home bleeding. Yeah. Yeah, and some of those folks today are the kids that, that did come home yeah. bleeding, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that history is not too far in the past. Yeah, I, I, I think about that a fair bit when, you know, obviously the children's agenda, our work takes us into conversations with lots of different leaders in the community. And I, I do wonder sometimes, um, and you, you, you featured um, Mayor Warren a lot in, in your book, and maybe it's kind of embodying sort of that perspective of an attitude that we don't need, <laughs> like, our, you know, our kids and, and the black community to, um, to be, you know, exposed to white children in, in that way. Um, or that you know we're going to kind of do it on our own, and we're going to fix you know problems in, in the city and in city schools without you know I think maybe a perception of like a white savior you know and and yet I also think I mean you've pointed at, at times that there's a divergence at some at some level between maybe elements of black political leadership in this community and then sort of public opinion um, within the black community on things like countywide schools or. or creating more integration. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, th- that is an interesting tension because, I mean, it's it's immediately apparent that y- you won't find a lot of black community leaders who are coming out in favor of, of integration, although the new mayor, Malik Evans, is, is one. Yeah. Um, but there's a great deal of evidence uh, that black families and, and poor families in the city um, are willing to entertain a, a pretty wide variety of, of uh, avenues for improving educational outcomes for their kids. Uh, and, and certainly one of them is taking a bus to uh, what they perceive as a better school, whether that's a charter school, wherever it happens to be in the city, or a private school. Or, I mean, the clearest example of this is the Urban Suburban Program. Um, I, I talk about it a great deal in the book. The Urban Suburban Program right now is set up in a unequitable and almost hostile way to the kids that participate in it. They have to take buses at at very difficult hours in the morning and the afternoon. They don't get any particular targeted support when they're there. And and we've we've seen some of the experiences those kids have. It's not advertised in uh, in the city at all. It's through word of mouth. It's not translated into languages other than English. Uh, kids with disabilities are uniformly not accepted or, or any other kids who would be expensive to educate. And yet, despite all of those factors, it is consistently oversubscribed by you know what the program usually says, a factor of 10 to 1. That to me says, and there's di- direct polling, and you know poll questions are different from people's actual actions, but there's direct polling that shows that black support for a countywide school district, to, to name one metropolitan solution, is in fact higher than support for expanding charter schools, which we already have seen is a very popular solution. So I, I think it's safe to say that there's interest in this, although you still would need to deal with, you know, the, the learn the lessons of, of how we did this poorly the first time. Yeah, and then there's also the, the reality that while... The suburbs in Monroe County were explicitly set up, and, and in some cases, um, or sort of structurally set up to exclude poor Black families. Um, 
in recent years, the, the suburbs around the city of Rochester, particularly on the west side, but then also around Decoit um, and, and Henrietta have become increasingly diverse. And, and those schools, you know, are integrated in a way that RCSD is not, right? And that some of the, the, the much more affluent east side suburbs aren't. I mean, if you look at the the demographics of East Arundacoit or Gates Chilai. I mean, I, I point to Gates Chilai, like if we had a countywide school, it would look like Gates Chilai in terms of the demographics. Um, it's kind of the, the median um, uh, there. So um, there's clearly some you know, desire through all those things you mentioned, but then also people, when they have the resources, you know, African-American families, um, Latino families, when they, when they have the resources to, to find a home in, in you know, Arundacoit, right? Um, and yet, when I've also looked at the data around this, um, those school districts that families of color have moved into have also, in recent years, experienced sort of white flight, right? So the, the number of white children in, in Gates Child Life, for example, has, has declined as the, as the number of black children has increased. And there's, you know, the, there's capacity in that town for more families, right? So I don't know if... if uh, I don't know that if there's a question there, but that, but that just that this is still an ongoing process and, and, and we have, I think, some perceived success at some level as a community, but then a lack of a, of a regional or a broader kind of community-wide approach sort of, it, it seems like it's the trajectory of continued kind of movement between sort of integration and segregation is going to kind of continue to sort of fracture things away. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, I think that this gets down to like the point that that like explicit policies or even like facts on the ground, like you're mentioning, there's still like we still need to look more closely at things on an individual level and think like, like why are specific families making those choices if if they were happy or unhappy in East Rondicoit, um or, or in Gates or, or wherever else? To me, that that reinforces the fact that we're not going to make our way out of this problem without addressing racism as a force head on, and not only because of the effects it has in in education, but because that is the the motivating factor in so many of the inequalities in other um, parts of of uh, our community you know like that's one that's my main criticism i think of of various school reform things like oh if we just got rid of urbanski if we just got rid of this or that school board member or like all these administrators in central office fine let's pause it that through some turning of the of the knobs we could get a perfect rcsd but that doesn't do anything to the to the intersections with housing with job access with health care um with any of those other things that, that that to me is an obvious uh oversight of of school reform yeah i mean i, I agree so um why don't we talk a little bit about um you had three recommendations um for sort of next steps and i think it may be built within that you can maybe speak to kind of what what effect you're hoping that that this book has on discourse in the community around i mean you specifically as you sort of just alluded to i mean you wrote this book about education um and disparate outcomes um by race in terms of education how we kind of got to where we are today 
and that whole struggle. But there's a completely parallel struggle in in housing. You know, of, we don't construct much multifamily housing in our in our suburbs, which is the way that you're allowed for more socioeconomic integration, right? Um, so you know, which in our community certainly leads to more racial integration. So, um, what are you hoping? happens as a result of, of this book and then maybe can you talk about those kind of three specific things briefly that you're calling for yeah so I, the, the the absolute minimum that i'm hoping for um is that even if nothing changes even if none of my three recommendations are are enacted my hope is that we at least will concede and reintroduce into our language that we have segregated systems that that we are essentially operating under the the Plessy v. Ferguson model of of education and and community organization. Uh, I feel like just like reintroducing that context, which has been so like assiduously erased over the last fifty years, will we at least can can sit with that discomfort and see what it does. My three recommendations, briefly. The first one is to have a, uh, a study of, of means of metropolitan cooperation in education and in other things. One of the things that surprised me in researching the book was to find that people have been talking about either a countywide school district or something for more than 100 years now, and yet there have never been answers to the basic questions of who runs it, who pays for it, how long do the kids have to go on the bus. Um, and in the absence of those answers, uh, it's been very easy to dismiss the entire concept out of hand. So I think once you've got those things in place, what would this look like? What are the legislative obstacles? Uh, what are the judicial prospects? Once we have those facts, then we can have a, an in-depth discussion about it and at that point also address you know, what we've talked about before, the ambivalence in the, in the black community and, and the, the entire topic. So that's number one. Number two... The, the one thing that's already on the books is urban-suburban. The structure of urban-suburban is extremely permissive, and it was, it was created that way uh, as an inducement to suburban districts to join in and not feel like they had to adhere to any rules that made them or their residents uncomfortable. My argument is that that permissive structure can be used for the opposite reason, to, to institute more equitable policies. Any school district at its next board meeting could pass a policy and say, here's how we're going to participate in urban suburban. We're not going to pick kids like the NFL draft. We're not going to send them back if, if something goes wrong. And we're going to offer them support in a way that we don't already, which is could be transportation, which could be targeted ac academic support. At the very minimum, disaggregating that data internally to be able to tell if something is going wrong, as we have seen often that it, it does go wrong for those kids. Uh, and number three, as I was saying earlier, any political or administrative or technological changes are not going to take their full effect unless people understand why we're doing this. And, and practically speaking, um, you know, when there's the, the contentious political meeting where something is happening and, and there's going to be 100 people shouting it down, in the civil rights era, there were also a hundred people shouting for it, and you know that helped fortify the the politicians doing this stuff. So, so I think that at a minimum, schools need to continue on the path that they're on, which is teaching about this stuff and, and helping kids to learn to think about it. 
Um, and you know, if that happens, then and neither of my other recommendations happen, then it, we're at least laying some groundwork for somebody else in the future to to not be uh, as afraid of this problem as we are now. Yes, let's let's kind of pick up each of those things a little bit um, briefly before we kind of wrap up. Yeah, I, I felt on, on your first recommendation there. I think one of the one of the dynamics that you explored in the book and that is, I think, present sort of implicitly when we talk about potential approaches to sort of integrating our schools is like a lot of times the burden of integration ends up being placed on black families, right? It's the black kids from the city who have to get on buses that take them to some pretty far distances in some instance on the urban suburban program. Or when we talk about you know, developing a countywide magnet school, like Great Schools for All has, um, as you mentioned in, in the book, um, you know, there's a there's a attention given to trying to maintain some level of socioeconomic integration and, and all of that. And I, I would guess that kind of built within that, there's a understanding or a expectation that in terms of the lower income black families, there's going to be oversubscription, there's going to be more demand to get into that school. Um, and <clears throat> among sort of more affluent white families, it's going to be like, can we induce you to come to this school kind of thing? And so there's then it, all of a sudden inequitable access to that that particular program. Or, or as you explored in the book, I mean, trying to create magnets within within the city school district to, as a um, an inducement to middle class um, white families to stay, um, that spending that maybe isn't being dedicated to the you know the school that has ninety nine out of one hundred kids are um, children of color and yeah I don't know a way around that exactly always because the dynamics of our of our society are what they are but those are I think some of the beyond all the kind of the governance structure and and distance from schools and, and all sorts of other things you'd have to work out for a, a metropolitan solution. I, I would I would hope that any kind of plan also tried to grapple with with that and but also recognizing the political reality of of needing something that will, you know, pass muster and actually be able to, to get into effect. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that but or how you've how you sort of think about that, but yeah. I would hope that any sort of plan that's developed um, kind of incorporate some thinking around, uh, you know, equity of access and, and again, not placing all the burdens of, of moving to some kind of broader model on poor kids in the city, I guess. Yeah, yeah that, that certainly was the premise in the 60s and 70s was, okay, fine, we'll let the black kids go to the yeah. white schools. Yeah. And it, it, would, it would need to be more of an a, a, um, equitable joint structure and that like that's not impossible to do there's plenty of ways to think about that as you know when we say political climate what we mostly mean is white people are going to be mad yeah and so like here's a an example of where i think it's useful to introduce some like discomfort into our thinking great school like if great schools for all were to make their schools i mean that would those would be great schools like that would be wonderful you know i I would be happy with my kids going to one of those schools but let's remember that we're that like the framing of that is integrated schools are an option for families who like that sort of thing yeah and like 
that's just absolutely not the first of all the the holding of Brown versus Board of Education, and I don't think what we like to think about our country. You know, like that would not have been an acceptable ruling in Brown versus Board of Education if the Birmingham School Board had said, "Okay, fine, we'll make another school in." Like whoever wants to go to it can, and then maybe we'll have like 50 kids who are in this idyllic integrated yeah. uh, setting. So I, that to me, like to always be zooming out in that sense and say like, okay, we're we're positing that integrated integration in education is is a boutique offering for families who like it. That that to me, just right off the bat, is is uh, wrong. Yeah, yeah, and I. Well, I guess moving to, to the other two, and I actually want to kind of maybe talk about those two together. I sometimes get a little bit frustrated to, to confess something um, to those people still listening to this point at some of the the intense focus on developing anti-racist curriculum in suburban schools in Monroe County or you know, re- efforts that really hyper-focus on you know DEI stuff um, at the expense of trying to kind of create some structural changes that would create, you know, more diverse student bodies. So it's, it's fine. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly in favor of people, first of all, reading your book um, and trying to think about ways that the curriculum in various suburban schools could be more inclusive and, and all that. But I'd, I'd also like to see those folks like petition for zoning changes <laughs> so you can build, you know, apartment building in Penfield, which you really can't right now. Or, or like, um, I mean, there's all sorts of like lot sizes and all sorts of like stuff like that that is in the weeds, but is, is actually the way that in reality you create a more sort of diverse community. And I would, I would hope that what you sort of call for in terms of changes to the urban-suburban program could be something like concrete that you know people could take to their to their school board and say I mean first of all a lot of these schools have had declining enrollment for years and they haven't really increased their you know the number of children urban suburban Um, as far as I can tell and you and I've kind of both looked at it a little bit I mean the growth in urban suburban has come from the from more districts entering it not the districts that are in it increasing the number of kids but finding ways to I don't know as, as a call to action like like let's let's get the superintendent or the school board to, to ratify these changes. But then also to your third point, recognizing that those things are only going to happen and they're only going to persist if there's, again, political will among the voters who elect those members of the Board of Education in these various districts to, to do that, right? So I think like the second and third recommendations have to be tied together because if there isn't that understanding of why we need to do this kind of thing, then you're never going to achieve the the changes to urban suburban that would be a lot more both equitable and structured to, to better serve those kids who are who are coming in, right? Yeah, I think I mean there's a there's a major hurdle. So like the school districts now are, I'd say like more or less faithfully committed to having more equitable outcomes for the kids in their districts. So like in almost every single district, the, the kids of color are suspended more often, have less access to higher uh, level class courses, all that sort of thing. And, and so they're working on that, that's, and that's great. They, they should be working on that. 
then, so like theoretically, let's say we get to the point where Penfield, you know, doesn't have any of those disparities. That that would that is far short of the, the ultimate equitable goal because there are very few yep. kids of color in Penfield to start with, and that I think is like that's the point where I'm kind of implicitly challenging the sovereignty of the the districts as political entities. Like it doesn't. It, what I'm essentially saying is do the best you can, but also it doesn't matter ultimately how well you educate that very small group of, of kids in your district because there's we're all part of this much larger inequitable system that cannot be changed without the proactive efforts of of these suburban districts. So, yeah, and, you know, like, uh, you're right that the, 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 the anti-racist curriculum, the DEI stuff, that can... I mean, at its worst, it's a, a facade. At its at its best, it's still not enough. But the what I get out of it is like those of us who have been living and working in this in this community for a long time have become inured to the the, the situation. And like yeah. I, I write in the book about like a learned helplessness around it. The the there are not a lot of places that you can look for uh, optimism, but one of them is that kids in schools don't have that learned pessimism. They absolutely can see once prevent, presented with this stuff that it's wrong and that something should change, and they might not have the language around it. But you know, it, it seems Pollyanna-ish, but that's what education is for. You know, like that—that's why we teach kids to use their brains and think about the world around them is so that they can do something better in their time than than we are in ours and yep. in that sense we don't need to fret so much about oh geez john roberts will never allow it or you know mitch mcconnell will never allow it like that that may be true but you know we can see from the the history of this stuff that it happens through unexpected turns of, of history, you know, like the redlining that we talk all about so much happened because there was a depression and then there were federal agencies that were created to help keep people in their houses and support their mortgages. And that led to like this enormous cascade of unseen changes. You know, World War II was an enormous factor in that. So I think, you know, I think the real value of my third point, which is to educate kids and adults on this stuff is to, to create the, a, a, a context, a frame of mind, so that when whatever happens does happen, we won't any longer be saying like, oh, well, what could we do about schools? We only have this very narrow playbook of like either give them more money or sanction them. And like those are the only two choices we possibly have. You made reference to, to John Roberts there. I think the, the composition of the Supreme Court Supreme Court rulings since the since the seventies have really made it clear that you know we're not going to find that that external actor who's going to kind of force change, right? It has to like the, the path to creating a more just community is it will take some kind of majority in the form of a lot of different things, you know. But but saying like this is what we want, and we're going to kind of work through the challenges and the resistance and all that. Like you're not going to get 
some hand of God external actor right. who's going to to make it happen. So we we have to build that will, whether it's this generation, next generation, whatever. Um, right. I mean, like I think I mean I don't get into this in the book because like I don't even know how I would, but like when we think about climate change, it it's a certainty that fifty years from now we're we're no longer going to be like driving all over God's creation in our our single owner cars you know like our community is going to be organized differently yeah. so so that somehow will have an effect on the ways that on the way that that people and schools are distributed so like and nobody knows what that's going to be like but we can think in advance about how that could look more fair yeah yeah i think that's a great example um as well because it's the it's the actions that people need to take today to hopefully avert some of the worst consequences of climate change, you know, so that life can be, I was going to say worth living, but that's a, <laughs> that's a um, that was a Webster subtweet <laughs> in the future. But yeah, it's the same way. Like we don't know. I mean, the, the track record for our, both of our lifetimes around these issues shows, you know, not a ton of progress on, on broadly speaking, racial integration in schools and a lot of backsliding in certain areas, but there are things that we can, try to do today that will, you know, maybe set some seeds or set some path in, in, in action so that this community does look a lot differently from a, a, a bunch of lenses, but certainly in terms of, of racial disparities and all sorts of aspects of, of life um, into the future. So I'll let you kind of plug, where, um, where can our listeners uh, pick up a copy of this book? There was a little shortage because it's going to be a local bestseller, right? But I think it's back in stock now. So where can they get a copy of this book? Yep. Uh, it's available uh, wherever fine books are sold. They agreed to sell mine as well. Uh, there are signed copies available at Hippocampo Children's Books, which uh, I know is uh, near to your heart as it is to mine right. on, on South Avenue. But it's also available at uh, Barnes Noble, any other uh, independent bookstore you choose, Amazon. There's a, there's copies at the library. And also uh, over the next few months, I'll be traveling around speaking. Uh, and you can, uh, I'll have books with me. My website is justinmurphywriter.com. And there's a more or less up-to-date list of those events on there. Uh, well, great. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me today on Raising Rochester. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and family, including on social media. And feel free to send feedback or show ideas to me at pete at thechildrensagenda.org. Until next time, on behalf of The Children's Agenda, I'm Pete Bosney.